The concept of reasonable suspicion made very important for law enforcement in the case Terry versus Ohio is not easily understood. In fact, back in 2002, the United States Supreme Court in United States versus Arvizu stated that the concept of reasonable suspicion is somewhat abstract. Reasonable suspicion is what we're going to talk about in this special Supreme Court edition of Broadcast Blue. Bringing you the latest case law updates on the legal aspects of law enforcement. This is Broadcast Blue. Welcome to this presentation. I'm your host, Bruce Allen Barnard, and today I'm going to talk about the case Kansas versus Glover, a Supreme Court decision released on the 6th of April of 2020. It's a very interesting case. Very, The facts are very short. Sometimes these Supreme Court decisions are 50, 60 pages long, and you spend a lot of time going through the facts. The facts are very short. But before I get to these facts, first allow me to take a little bit of time and frame the issue for us. So putting this into perspective of framing the issue that we're going to be presented with today, just a little bit of background here first. And, and it's it's something that you ought to know already. I'm nothing going to be new in this, at least hopefully. Um, but it's always good to have just a little bit of a refresher before we dive into the legal arguments, the specific Fourth Amendment legal arguments. So uh, give me just a, a few minutes of your time to, to frame the issue for you. As as you know, a traffic stop is a Fourth Amendment seizure. And the Fourth Amendment demands that government seizures be reasonable. And in fact, and you've heard it over and over and over, especially if you're one of my students from the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center or one of the students I've had over the last uh, couple of years uh, presenting, doing presentations with LEA One, reasonableness is the touchstone of the Fourth Amendment. And we've heard that over and over in, in the cases. And uh, we heard Chief Justice Rehnquist say that in Ohio versus Robinette, and this whole concept of reasonableness being the touchstone of the Fourth Amendment. Well, reasonableness is determined under a totality of the circumstances. So I have to look at all the facts and circumstances surrounding this reasonableness determination. Now, for traffic stops, there are two main requirements for traffic stops to be reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. First, the stop has to be valid at its inception, valid ab initio, if you want to throw some Latin in there. In other words, the stop has to be based on a constitutionally valid uh, set of facts and purpose. Second, the duration of the stop has to be reasonable. So we have the duration element of there as well. And generally speaking, the duration must be no longer than that needed to accomplish the mission of the stop, which is the traffic offense um, that precipitated the stop to begin with. Recently, as a especially as a result of the Supreme Court decision back in 2015 in Rodriguez versus United States, many, if not most, of this traffic stop cases have focused on this second requirement, which is the duration of the stop. We've seen a lot of cases in 2018 and 19 and into the 2020 every every week it seems there are one or two cases where they're discussing the duration of the stop what was permissible what questions were permissible what actions were permissible without without uh, impermissibly extending the stop but in this case the focus is going to be on the first requirement which is the validity of the stop at its inception 
Now, because most traffic stops involve a summons and citation and not an arrest, traffic stops historically have been treated similarly uh, to Terry stops, applying the principles of Terry versus Ohio. So accordingly, police officers must at a minimum, at a minimum, have a reasonable suspicion that the person, the automobile, the person driving the automobile has violated a provision of the traffic code before they can lawfully conduct a traffic stop, which again is a Fourth Amendment seizure. In this case, the case we're going to be talking about today, Kansas versus Glover, the Supreme Court was presented with the issue of whether the deputy had a reasonable suspicion to make the traffic stop based on a totality of the circumstances. So as I said earlier, this entire case is based on just a few undisputed facts. Let's take a look at, at what happened. Back in April of 2016, Douglas County Deputy Sheriff Mark Mayer was on routine patrol in Douglas County, Kansas, when he observed a 1995 Chevy 1500 pickup. Now, this pickup truck had Kansas plates, and he could make out the plates on the truck 295ATJ. Deputy Mayor ran the license plate, and when he ran the plate, it came back registered to a 1995 Chevrolet 1500 pickup, uh, just like he was looking at, and it matches the just the truck that he's looking at. So the plates on the right truck, and the plate uh, and the truck itself was registered to the owner, Charles Glover Jr. Now the Kansas records uh, came back to him had also indicated when he ran the check that Charles Glover Jr. had a Kansas driver's license that had been revoked by the state of Kansas. And at that point, Deputy Mayor assumed that Glover, as the registered owner, was driving the truck. And Deputy Mayor, he, he didn't observe any traffic infractions, so there was no pretextual stop here. Um, he didn't have any uh, traffic infraction that he'd observed uh, aside from the facts that I've given you. And he didn't make any attempt to identify who was driving the, the, the truck. He didn't pull up alongside or pass and try and get a look. Just based on the facts that he ran the plates, the plates came back to the pickup truck described just as the one that he saw, and that the registered owner uh, was Charles Glover Jr. Just based on that, he, um, he made a stop. He made this traffic stop based only on his assumption that Glover was the one driving the vehicle. And then it, once he had made the stop, he identified that it was indeed Glover, and he was charged with driving on the revoked license as a habitual offender. These are what I've just said. These are all the facts that were presented to the Kansas courts. And those are the only facts upon which the Supreme Court made its majority decision. Now, there's also a, another uh, set of facts, another additional fact, if you will, uh, that deals with the concept of what it takes in order to have your license revoked in the state of Kansas. The Kansas license revocation scheme uh, covers drivers who have already demonstrated a disregard for the law or are ca categorically fit into one of the categories uh, declared unfit to drive. It, the, the law states the division of vehicles of the Kansas Department of Revenue shall revoke a driver's license upon certain convictions for involuntary manslaughter, vehicular homicide, battery, reckless driving, fleeing, or attempting to elude a police officer or a conviction of a felony in which a motor vehicle is used. 
So they don't just revoke uh, licenses in Kansas willy-nilly. In order to have a revocation, uh, there are some serious offenses which have to take place before the revocation occurs. Now, that that's an additional fact. We'll talk about that a little bit when we get into the Supreme Court's decision. I'll tell you up front a little bit of a spoiler alert. It did not... Uh, it did not have a significant impact, although it was noted, it did not have a significant impact on the majority decision, um, but in the concurring opinion, it was a significant factor. So Glover was charged as a habitual violator for driving on a revoked license, and he sought at trial, he sought to have the evidence that he was driving the truck suppressed as a result of a Fourth Amendment violation. So specifically, Glover argued that Deputy Mayor stopped him on a hunch and lacked the reasonable suspicion necessary to make a lawful traffic stop. Now, the Kansas District Court at the trial level agreed with Glover and suppressed the evidence. And then the government appealed. It went to the Kansas Court of Appeals, which reversed. The Kansas Court of Appeals said that it was reasonable for Deputy Mayor to infer that the driver was the owner of the vehicle because there were specific and articulable facts from which the officer's common sense inference gave rise to a reasonable suspicion. The Kansas Supreme Court reversed the Court of Appeals, holding that Deputy Mayor did not have a reasonable suspicion because his inference that Glover was behind the wheel amounted to only a hunch that Glover was engaging in criminal activity. So basically, the Kansas Supreme Court said, hey, look, this is a hunch, but it doesn't rise to the level of a reasonable suspicion. So Kansas uh, petitioned the United States Supreme Court to hear the issue, and the writ of certiorari was granted. So this is like a, this case so far, it's like a ping pong ball going back and forth. You know, what is reasonable suspicion? What is reasonable suspicion? So it, it turns out uh, the, the court back in 2002, the Supreme Court um, pretty much nailed it when they said that it's not a very, a very easy uh, or simple concept, that it's a, an abstract concept as they refer to it, which is why these cases um, helping us determine what are reasonable suspicion and what constitutes probable cause. These cases are very, very important for us to, to look at um, and to, to make a part of our professional uh, studies. So on the briefs and oral arguments, Glover makes two specific arguments against the presence of a reasonable suspicion and against the the government's uh, petition and argument uh, that reasonable suspicion was present just based on the facts as presented. First, Glover argued that Deputy Mayor's inference was unreasonable because it was not grounded in his law enforcement training or experience. Now, if you've if you've been listening to any of the Broadcast Blue podcast or any training with Leah One, you know, we talk about this very, very often, this whole concept of when you're trying to establish this this level of belief or certainty, uh, the the different things that come together under the totality of the circumstances, and the court, uh, the Supreme Court, and the lower courts have repeat, repeatedly held that there can be inferences drawn, and that these inferences can be based on law enforcement training or experience, um, and and that training, knowledge, and experience, what I've abbreviated as TKE, we talk about the TKE. Um, portion or requirement. Well, especially uh, in probable cause determinations, a TKE can be really, really significant. The, that officer's specific experience in a particular area, what the officer's 
have observed with, over time. You know, certain, certain actions usually resulted, um, came about as a result of certain situations. And it's this training or experience and this knowledge that they have, this particularized knowledge to law enforcement that can help draw these inferences. And Glover's argument was that the inference that was drawn was unreasonable because there was no training uh, he, and, and he didn't there was no information anyway there's no evidence presented it wasn't a part of the facts that the, that the inference was made based on his law enforcement training or or experience so that's the first argument that the, any inference that's going to be made to create this reasonable suspicion has to be grounded in law enforcement training or um, experience TKE the second argument that Glover made was uh, their argument was as if if you if the court adopted the view that Kansas uh, was presenting on appeal, that it would eviscerate the need for officers to base reasonable suspicion on specific and articulable facts that are particularized to the individual, because the police could instead just rely exclusively on probabilities. I mean, what are the odds that the guy driving the truck? You've got you've got a, a person. The truck's registered in the name of one person. The truck is described, so the right plate's on the right truck, and there's one person in the truck driving the truck. You know, what are the odds that this person is the one to, uh, to whom the truck is registered? That's the, the kind of, of view that, that Glover is arguing would take away that uh, the particularity requirement um, that was um, articulated in Terry versus Ohio. It has to be particular. And, and, and that's, that shouldn't come as a surprise. I mean, the particularity uh, language of the warrant clause in the Fourth Amendment is very, very important. All of our scope decisions and our, um, especially with respect to warrants, uh, but also with warrantless searches, uh, all of these, the issues of scope deal directly with that particularity language. And the particularity uh, that's required um, in the Terry versus Ohio case is very, very important. You have to, it, the, the suspicion that the officers develop has to be particularized to that a particular individual that they are going to temporarily seize. And it's the same with the, the traffic stops. That's very important. And they're saying that if you allow him to, um, if you allow the officers just to make these decisions based on exclusively on probabilities, that it will remove the particularity that's required um, in that analysis. So those are the two arguments that Glover made. The precise issue that the court stated that it was presented with, um, and this is directly from the very beginning of the opinion, the issue is whether a police officer violates the Fourth Amendment by initiating an investigative traffic stop after running a vehicle's license plate and learning that the registered owner has a revoked license. Now, before we get to the court's decision, let's take a few minutes to review some very important previous Supreme Court decisions that are going to be relied upon heavily by the court in reaching their decision in this case, what I often refer to as blue key cases. In order to resolve the issue that the court has defined in this case, they're going to have to answer the question, did Deputy Mayor have the requisite reasonable suspicion to make a lawful traffic stop based solely on those specific facts? 
Now, there are a number of cases uh, cited by the court and very important uh, for you to know as a refresher. If you're not already aware of these cases, um, then uh, maybe you should take some time to, to investigate these cases. These are very significant, important cases, these blue key cases. So let's go through a few of the cases just briefly, what they stand for, what the legal uh, with the legal uh, rule of law that's developed in these cases that the court's going to apply. I'm going to start with the United States versus Cortez. And this was a case that came out of the United States Supreme Court back in 1981, a while back. And the rule of law that was developed in United States Cortez basically stands for the proposition that the Fourth Amendment permits an officer to initiate a brief investigative traffic stop when he has a particularized and objective basis for suspecting the person stopped of criminal activity. So there's where you're, there's where that the whole concept of this reasonable suspicion uh, from Terry versus Ohio being applied to making a traffic stop. I already gave you the the little quote from United States versus um, Arvizu, the concept of reasonable suspicion is somewhat abstract. So, and that's a significant understatement. It's very, very difficult um, to, you, they're very fact specific and, and they're based on a totality of the circumstances. And so uh, it's very, uh, it's very hard. It's a fluid concept to be sure. And to say that it's somewhat abstract, I think is, um, it's very true. Um, a little bit of an understatement. It's you have to look at cases and see what, when it, when do you have it, and when you don't. It's not easily determined, is it? If it was, we wouldn't have this case. You know, we've had this case, you know, like a ping pong ball, ball going back and forth from one appellate court up the chain to the next. Yes, there's reasonable suspicion. No, it was just a hunch. Yes, there's reasonable suspicion. No, it was just a hunch. So the courts wrestle with this. And so we know we know it isn't easy. And it's the law enforcement officers on the front lines having to make these these decisions really, really quickly. And so uh, to have an abstract concept that has to be applied in the spur of the moment by a law enforcement officer, uh, um, it makes it makes things a little bit more difficult um, than it otherwise would be, um, to say the least. The next two cases I'm going to talk about are Navarrete versus California, which is that very interesting case from 2014, you know, very close 5-4 decision uh, regarding that whether or not the, a call itself can establish, a 911 call can establish that reasonable suspicion. But in the Navarrete versus California decision, um, they cited United States versus Socolow, which was a decision that came out uh, more than, uh, I guess, about 15 or no, uh, 25 years earlier, uh, back in 1989, uh, the United States versus Socolow decision. And in that decision, the Supreme Court said that a hunch does not create a reasonable suspicion, but the level of suspicion required is considerably less than preponderance of the evidence and obviously less than probable cause. So the court here is really doing the only thing it can do, and it's defining this abstract concept of reasonable suspicion by placing it in where it would sit in this hierarchy of burdens of proof are levels of certainty. And they, they say, look, a hunch isn't enough. And just this, uh, what, what might be considered a subjective uh, suspicion, this, this hunch is not enough. Just to have a hunch that somebody is up to criminal activity um, does does not rise, does not create a reasonable suspicion. But you don't have to have much more than that. In fact, you certainly don't need preponderance of the evidence. And if you're familiar with burdens of proof, and I've always hated 
I've always hated comparing burdens of proof to levels of certainty. It's a it's apples and oranges, and it's, you know, the lawyers are really, really familiar with burdens of proof. That's what we're taught in law school. You know, we know what a scintilla of evidence means, and we know what preponderance of the evidence means. That's more likely than not. Down here in the South, we'd call that 50% and a smidgen, right? Um, more likely than not is what you have for preponderance of the evidence. And then you go up the burden of proof to proof beyond a reasonable doubt which on a level of certainty is more, uh, um, is more, it would be considered more of a reasonable certainty. And then they throw in probable cause and they say, look, the level of suspicion has to be more than a hunch, but it is considerably less, much less than a preponderance of the evidence and obviously less than probable cause. Well, what, why is that obvious? Because the courts have said that probable cause doesn't mean more likely than not. It only means a, a fair probability, um, which is more. And they, of course, they refuse to put percentages on it because there's no way to mathematically calculate a percentage on these these notions of, of reasonable suspicion and, and probable cause. But they say it's less than it's less than fifty percent because it's less than preponderance of the evidence, right? Um, but uh, but um, reasonable suspicion is even less than that. So reasonable suspicion fits somewhere, um, and we know this from the Sokolow case, it's in the, that area less than probable cause, but more than a hunch. Um, and it, it, it doesn't take much, just you know, a few articulable facts that create this particularized and objective basis for suspecting someone of this, this particular um, active criminal activity um, becomes important. So that's the those two cases, the Navarrete case and the Sokolow case, are very, very important cases and uh, cases that you should be familiar with. And another case uh, that came out um, back in 1990, Alabama versus White, um, was a very interesting decision. And if you ever dealt with, we've had a few cases where we dealt with um, establishing reasonable suspicion based on uh, predictions that are coming true. You know, we've got an anonymous tip that predicts very specific future activity, and then you're monitoring this activity, and things are happening exactly the way uh, that the, the person said it would, that this reasonable suspicion can be created by the, the accurate prediction of this future activity. They're dealing with reasonable suspicion in Alabama versus White, and um, and in defining and trying to define reasonable suspicion in Alabama versus White, um, the, the Supreme Court said um, that because it's less demanding, because the standard is less demanding, reasonable suspicion can be established with information that is different in quantity or content than that um, to require uh, that's required to establish probable cause. Now we usually um, establish probable cause and reasonable suspicion with the same methods it's just you have more of it um, we can you can establish reasonable suspicion with uh, with a confidential informant or you can establish probable cause with a confidential informant it just takes a little bit more it's a uh, there, there there's a, there's a difference in quantity or in the actual content but the, the methods uh, tend to be the same and and so that's the the whole concept in Alabama versus white there that um that it's different that with the, that it's different in quantity or content than required to establish probable cause in other words um, since it's a less demanding standard it's easier 
to establish reasonable suspicion. It doesn't take as much. Again, in the Navarrete versus California decision, they cite, they quoted another case, the Ornelas versus United States, which is a Supreme Court decision from back in 1996, for the proposition um, that the standard, uh, the reasonable suspicion standard, depends on the factual and practical considerations of everyday life on which reasonable and prudent men, not legal technicians, act. And so that's the, 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 the common sense standard that they're setting for um, these uh, these determinations that that we're making with respect to reasonable suspicion. And um, finally, there's one case, the last case I want to mention, doesn't have have, uh, anything to do specifically with reasonable suspicion. It is a very important case, and if you've never, um, if you're a law enforcement officer, you you definitely should be familiar with Delaware versus Prowse from back in 1979. And the, the legal notion for that and what is the underlying basis for the the decision in this case um, before they even get into the concept of reasonable suspicion is that states have a vital interest in ensuring that only those who are qualified to do so are permitted to operate motor vehicles and that licensing registration and vehicle inspection requirements are being observed and so it gives this is the state's interest you know we got this We've got this balancing test that's always going to take place when we're talking about reasonableness. You're going to have this this government interest in in enforcing the law and then specifically um, the types of laws that that we are looking at. And with the traffic code, um, it's the the ones that we uh, that I just mentioned here in Delaware versus Prowse. You're going to balance that with the person's individual interest uh, to be free from this type of government intrusion. And that's what the whole, the whole reasonableness is going to be, uh, concept is going to be based on this. So there, there are your important cases, the, the, the blue key cases for d- developing, determining whether or not reasonable suspicion exists in this case. In a majority opinion that was written by Justice Thomas, the court held that the facts that were known to Deputy Mayor at the time of the stop gave rise to a reasonable suspicion. The court looked at the only three facts uh, that I discussed earlier, uh, noted that before initiating the stop, that Deputy Mayor observed this individual operating a 1995 Chevrolet 1500 pickup with Kansas plate 295 ATJ, and he also knew that the owner, the registered owner of the truck, had a revoked license revoked by the state of Kansas and that the model of the truck matched the observed vehicle. So from these three facts and these three facts alone, Deputy Mayor drew the common sense inference that Glover was likely the driver of the vehicle, which provided, and now I'm quoting the court here, which provided more than reasonable suspicion to initiate the traffic stop. So this is an important point here. The, the decision, it was an 8-1 split. Justice Sotomayor was the only dissenting opinion, and uh, she agreed with the Kansas Supreme Court um, for issues that I'll, I'll discuss a little bit later. Um, but it's important to point out that just these facts were what created more, um, according to the court. And this is since there were there were six justices that signed on with this majority opinion. So not even counting the concurring opinion um, by uh, Justices Kagan um, and Ginsburg, uh, not even counting the concurring opinion, which had some caveats. This is the majority opinion with, with six, uh, six justices signing on to this notion that 
that this alone created more than reasonable suspicion. What about what about the fact that registered owner of the vehicle is not always the person driving it? And the court said this fact doesn't negate the reasonableness of the inference. And the court said, in fact, this is the case with all reasonable inferences. The reasonable suspicion inquiry falls considerably short of 51% accuracy. Remember, that's that preponderance of the evidence standard. Um, and and if you go back to, and although they didn't, although they didn't cite the Navarrete decision for this particular uh, this particular concept, uh, you can certainly go to the Navarrete decision um, and for the notion where the court said, and they repeated the, the the concept they've stated over and over prior to the Navarrete decision. You don't have to rule out all innocent possibilities in order to have this reasonable suspicion. Um, and that was certainly uh, that was certainly the situation in this case. So we could stop right there and you would have your rule of law that you need to apply. Now I'm going to go on just a little bit more and explain the rest of the decision. Um, uh, just kind of put it a little bit more into context. After after the after uh, uh, Justice Thomas wrote that the, the, these three facts were more than enough to establish reasonable suspicion. He, he went on um, in the subsequent paragraph and he said, although common sense suffices to justify this inference, the Kansas law reinforces that it is reasonable to infer that an individual with a revoked drive, uh, license may continue to drive. So there's an inference. There's actually statistics. They have all these, these cases and statistics and studies that are done that show how many people who either have a revoked or a suspended license um, continue to drive on the revoke or suspended license. A very large percentage of individuals who have um, have revoked or suspended licenses uh, continue to drive uh, unlawfully. And so, just because his license was revoked, it didn't it didn't remove that the common sense inference that he could possibly be driving the truck because so many people with revoked licenses actually drive the uh, drive vehicles so um, they they threw that in um, they they kind of kind of threw that in uh, as a little bit of an additional tidbit which becomes more significant um, in the concurring opinions now specifically addressing these two arguments that the that the um, that Glover made uh, in this particular um, in in this case in front of the Supreme Court. Remember, I said first Glover argued that about the TKE, the the training, knowledge, and experience that this this decision has to be based on law enforcement training or experience. Well, the court dismissed that um, rather quickly. And, and Justice Thomas, in the opinion, wrote, nothing in our Fourth Amendment precedent supports the notion in determining whether reasonable suspicion exists. An officer can draw inferences based on knowledge gained only through law enforcement training and experience. We have repeatedly recognized the opposite. Um, in fact, and then the court goes on to cite Navarrete and notes that in the Navarrete decision, they noted that a number of behaviors, including driving in the median, crossing the center line and swerving, were um, a, a common sense as a matter of common sense provided indicia of drunk driving. And, and Justice Thomas also wrote the Navarrete decision. So he's, he's hearkening back to that, that Navarrete decision. Look, you, the, the common sense is based on common sense, right? It's not based on on 
sense that's not common. In other words, it's not based on just this TKE, this training, knowledge, and experience. It's based on the common experiences that we all have, and that um, that this can be this these, this common sense approach doesn't have to be based on this TKE. So so no no TKE is required. The court said the inference that the driver of a car is its registered owner does not require any specialized training. It's a reasonable inference made by ordinary people on a daily basis. Now, in in her dissenting opinion, Justice Sotomayor um, read the cases a little bit differently and 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 said that the the cases permit an officer to use only the common sense derived from his experiences in law enforcement. But in what I think is probably the best best quote in the entire uh, decision, Justice Thomas countered that. He said, such a standard defies the common sense understanding of common sense. So that's a, a, a pretty uh, witty little uh, comeback to that notion that the common sense had to be based on the TKE, that knowledge, training, and experience. So um, um, not required. So dismissed in hand that the first argument. And with respect to the second argument, uh, make, making the argument that, that if you allowed them to use uh, probabilities in order to establish this, this notion of reasonable suspicion, that it would take away, um, it, would, uh, it would remove the particularity requirement uh, that, is, that comes out of the Terry versus uh, Ohio decision. And the court noted as an initial matter uh, that they had previously stated that officers like jurors can rely on probabilities in the reasonable suspicion context. But they also pointed out it was important that, to note that Deputy Mayor didn't rely exclusively on probabilities. He knew that the license plate was linked to the truck that matched the observed vehicle, and he knew that the registered owner of the vehicle had a revoked license. So the, the inference wasn't just based on probability. It was actually some, some concrete facts uh, that were, that were uh, present as well. The court noted that based on the minimal facts, he used common sense to form a reasonable suspicion that a specific individual was potentially engaged in specific criminal activity. And so um, this specific or particular activity met the requirements um, of Terry versus Ohio. In the very last part of the majority opinion, there's a very important uh, caveat um, that's, that's been very important to point out. You know, a lot of cases that the Supreme Court decide have very broad applicability, and they have what I call ripples, this ripple effect. And um, we cases continue to happen based on this concept, this, this broad applicable concept that's developed, like United States versus Jones in 2012 or Rodriguez versus United States in 2015. Very, they have broad implications. The court... Um, almost warns um, in the, 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 the tail end of the opinion, um, Justice Thomas writes, we emphasize the narrow scope of our holding. So this case is, is not one that's broad. It's very narrow. Um, the, they note, the court noted, like all seizures, the officer's actions must be justified at its inception. And I've already pointed out to you that they're not, the, the two parts of the traffic stop, the, it has to be the it has to be justified at its inception, and the duration can't be any longer. So they're reiterating that the, the action has to be justified at its inception, and this reasonable suspicion standard 
takes into account a totality of the circumstances, the whole picture. Now, there wasn't much of a picture in this case. And we only had three facts. And the court notes that um, it, had there been additional facts, that it might have dispelled the reasonable suspicion. They even gave an example. Let me provide an example for you. Um, the, this is straight from the opinion. Uh, for example, if an officer knows that the registered owner of the vehicle is in his mid-60s, but observes that the driver is in her mid-20s, then the totality of the circumstances would not raise a suspicion that the particular individual being stopped was engaged in wrongdoing. And so had the officer seen that uh, this, this truck that was registered to a man was being driven by a woman, then that, with that additional fact, there would not, the, the inference um, could not have given rise to this inference, this reasonable suspicion that this person was driving on, um, on a revoked license. Um, so the court points out that in this very limited set of facts, Deputy Mayor possessed no exculpatory information um, and no information to rebut the reasonable inference that Glover was driving his own truck and therefore the, the stop was justified. So if you throw in more facts, it's always a totality of the circumstances. I, I ask I people ask me questions a lot in, in training sessions. What if this and what if that? They want to change the facts. I, you know, different facts, different conclusion. But, and that's the way totality of the circumstances work and uh, that whole concept of a totality of the circumstances. And so this is a, a very important point and, and why this case is so narrow. You throw in some more facts, um, you get a different result. So the decision of the Kansas Supreme Court um, that held that there was no reasonable suspicion was reversed and the case was remanded back for proceedings not inconsistent with the opinion. Now I told you that there were that there was a concurring opinion and also a dissenting opinion. I will tell you uh, with res with respect to Justice Sotomayor's dissenting opinion, basically she agreed with the TKE argument and the uh, particular the particularized um, issue of particularity, the two arguments that were made. Uh, basically, she concurred with the Kansas Supreme Court on on those issues. Um, she held that the that the inference could only be drawn from the knowledge, uh, the training, knowledge, and experience. Uh, what Justice Thomas said def def defied the common sense definition of common sense, and uh, and she basically agreed with the Kansas court. I'm not going to go in um, a lot to what she had to say in her dissenting opinion, uh, other than to say she agreed with the Kansas Supreme Court. But I do want to take just a second to talk about Justice Kagan's concurring opinion. Um, um, and in which Justice Ginsburg joined. Basically, uh, in a nutshell, Justice Kagan looked at, she said that we don't just have three facts here, we have four facts here. And one of the facts is that this Kansas law, that on a, on a revocation, uh, this Kansas law, um, the revocation only occurs if these certain drastic elements are met. Um, she looked at the Kansas law as the fourth factor. Now, in the, in the majority decision, Justice Thomas said, look, dude, these three facts alone create more than enough, give you more than enough for reasonable suspicion. But we'll go ahead and throw in this, this, you know, this stuff about the Kansas statute and what's, what it takes in order to revoke a person's license. Well, uh, so it's kind of a footnote, an unnecessary. It was the cherry on top of the finished cake. Um, so to speak, you know, what necessary 
Um, it wasn't a necessary part of it, but he threw it in there anyway. Well, for Justice Kagan, it was a very necessary part of it. In fact, Justice Kagan uh, went on and, and talked about how had this been a suspended license, and uh, she's noted it wouldn't be the same. Uh, her answer, her decision would not be the same if it had been a suspended license and not a revoked license unless the suspension was based on the same types of, of concept as the revocation. She noted that a lot in a lot of states, a person's, a person's license is suspended for reasons that are totally unrelated to their driving, your failure to pay child support, your failure to do some type of civil requirement, civil things. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with your, your, the dangerousness of your driving. Remember the legitimate interest, the government's got to have a legitimate interest in this, but it's that part of the balancing test from the very beginning. I started with the Delaware versus Prowse for this notion that the government has this, this, this interest. Well, what if the license is suspended for something that has absolutely nothing to do with the person's driving abilities, which is totally different than the revocation? Well, she said in that, in that case, um, she would not have reversed that she would have held that uh, um, that the uh, that the, the reasonable suspicion wasn't present here. So that's uh, she makes a big distinction, a big difference between revocation based on driving uh, dang the dangerous driving and and driving situations and uh, a, a suspension that's based on something that doesn't have anything whatsoever to do with driving. Um, it's important. Uh, to note uh, that they concurred in the decision because they they felt that the the revocation statute and scheme in the state of Kansas uh, rose to the level that it needed to. But that was an important fourth fact for her and for Justice Ginsburg, and um, um, and so that's important to point out. It's also important to point out that it's 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 not controlling, and we're not bound by it. Uh, that we have six justices that say the three those three facts and those three facts alone create. Um, create the reasonable suspicion. And they talk about revocation and suspension together uh, in the, in the, when the Justice Thomas was going through the whole scheme of the Kansas statute. He's, he talks about revocation and suspension, revocation and suspension. So the, the majority did not break out the distinction and the difference between the revocation um, and uh, suspension like um, the, uh, Justice Kagan did in her concurring opinion. But I thought um, I'd just point that out so you have a, a full picture of the opinion. Now we get to the point to where we look at our takeaway. You know, that's fine and dandy for the, the lawyers to debate the subtleties of these decisions, but what's the specific takeaway for law enforcement officers? What can you take away from this case? Well, it's a very, um, it's a very important case. There are a lot of a lot of lower court and state court decisions um, that had dealt with this issue before with information of a person driving on a suspended or revoked license, whether or not that could establish a reasonable suspicion. So it's, gonna, it's going to resolve the, the differences in these decisions in the, in the lower courts and give us specific guidance. We know it's narrow, to be sure, and the court, the court told us straight up that it was a narrow decision. I mean, it kind of almost warned us um, with the, the language. This is a very narrow decision, right? This is narrow on its facts, and there are only three facts. And so um, what our takeaway is, is that if you uh, if you run a license plate and the plate matches the vehicle and the vehicle comes back 
to a single owner and there is uh, you have no reason to believe you don't have any facts that would negate the inference that the person driving the vehicle is the person to whom the reg the vehicle's registered m minus that uh, that type of exculpatory uh, information that it's going to create a reasonable suspicion so that you can conduct a traffic stop of the vehicle just based on those 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 facts and so that's it's important but it's narrow remember if there's you've got some information if you, you see that it's a woman driving the truck when there's a man that's registered in the truck then you're not going to have that you're not going to have that reasonable suspicion that she's driving on a suspended license and what if you have what if you have a truck that's registered to multiple drivers or multiple people what if you have three two or three people that own a vehicle um, can you know the this the, this case doesn't present us with that the, that set of facts and so it's narrow on its facts but that's important even still because uh, we're gonna we know now we've, we looked at these cases we looked at these cases to help us resolve this, what the court referred to as abstract concept of reasonable suspicion. And this is one more case where we can take away a definitive response, a definitive answer to the question, does reasonable suspicion exist under these facts? And the answer is yes, it does. Before I sign off, I want to put in a plug for LEA1. The website address is lea.one. You can contact us through the website with a contact form. If you have any questions, um, be, you can address them to us through the, the contact form as well. And you can check out our schedule. We're, we're doing some really neat things. I, I want you to know we, um, we've started doing hybrid classes. They're online hybrid classes. And as I'm making, uh, as I'm making this presentation, we're in the middle of the coronavirus epidemic and it has forced us to change with all the, the, the training that's been canceled as a result of this uh, over uh, months and months i mean I, my entire schedule march april and may i was going to be gone on the road all the time training all across the country all of those live training sessions have been canceled well that doesn't mean the training's no longer needed it means that we can't do it face to face and so we have leveraged the technology that we have at leo one which is significant we have our own learning management system learn blue and uh, we have a virtual classroom live virtual classroom capability and we don't use uh, unsecure methods we use the the go to meeting platform go to webinar go to training platforms which are uh, very uh, very secure um, and we've created hybrid courses and i invite you go to the leo one webpage click on the schedule tab and look for one of these hybrid classes you want to look for the blue dot now we've got a bunch of free webinars too that we're putting on and you want to look for the the free webinar we don't charge 79 or 29 or 99 dollars for you to attend a webinar which we're doing our part uh, trying to fill the training gap in this uh, this crunch and we do a lot of webinars look for the yellow dot on the beside the title on the Leo one page schedule page and we also uh, the, the I'm really proud of the hybrid courses we're the only ones doing it it combines a live virtual classroom element with um, with very dynamic interactive videos and e-learning content uh, that are on demand and we teach so we take an eight-hour course like the legal aspects of traffic stops which is a very uh, very popular course and instead of teaching it in one day over eight hours we teach it over four weeks 
and we allow um, we allow participants to choose which live session they want to attend. There's more than one of them. In fact, there are six of them to, to choose from. Um, the live uh, live two hour portion of the course combined with six hours of on demand training all through Learn Blue. Check it out on the, the Leah One website. It's a, we're filling we're bridging the, and filling this training gap um, that's been created. Um, uh, by this this terrible pandemic but it's you know it's probably going to be the wave of the future too um, so we're going to continue doing it even after the pandemic is over leah l-e-a dot o-n-e our website address um, is our name and check out the schedule you can review cases you can check out the, the latest edition of the broadcast blue podcast um, and you can check out the latest YouTube videos as well, all on the Leah One website. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for what you do. Uh, it's kind of uh, kind of no-brainer for me to say stay safe, but it's very difficult for you to do that um, at the tip of the spear. Um, we've already had law enforcement officers officers who have died as a result of the coronavirus and um, the, the rest of us who aren't at the tip of the spear very, very much appreciate what you're doing and anything that we can do at LEA One to help you do your job better. We'd be more than happy to make that happen for you. Just let us know. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you real soon on another episode. This presentation is provided for purely academic purposes. I'm fond of saying I'm a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. And what I mean by that is that I do not provide formal legal advice through these presentations. No part of this presentation is offered, nor should it be construed as legal advice. If you need formal legal advice regarding any part of this presentation or have legal questions, you should consult with your attorney.